Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about what happens when a person stops taking their prescription antidepressants. I think we're careful with everybody. We warn them they might get worse, the, the antidepressant might backfire. And if that happens, we need to stop the antidepressant, obviously, and, and make sure they're safe. Then we'll hear about the signs and symptoms of burnout and what can be done to head it off. When we step back, we might be able to see it in someone else before we see it in ourselves. When we step back um, and we notice that this is happening, we can think about what needs to happen next. So we'd be talking about things they could do to, to manage that workload differently. And we'll explore the retrovirus HTLV-1 that has become prevalent among indigenous people in Australia. It doesn't kill right away and only kills a minority of the infected people. You actually have to live for quite a while with it in order to get sick from it. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear how to recognize and hopefully prevent burnout. Then we'll explore a troubling increase in the infection rate of HTLV-1 in Australia. But first, we find out all about antidepressant withdrawal. The New York Times analyzed federal data that shows long-term use of antidepressants is surging in the United States, with 15.5 million Americans taking the medications for at least five years. That's a number that's doubled since 2010 and tripled since the year 2000. Here to talk about these popular medications and what happens when someone stops taking them is Dr. Thomas Schwartz, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, who is also the interim chair of that department at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I want to focus on antidepressant withdrawal, but can we first talk about the popularity of antidepressants? Um, which drugs are we talking about? So I think the, the antidepressants as a class, the most common are what we call the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, so Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro would be the probably the most common. Um, there are other antidepressants that we do use, uh, Wellbutrin, Remeron, uh, Trintellix, Vibrid, but there's probably eight or nine that are, are the most commonly used. And we've been using the, when did we start using these? So I, I think looking back in psychiatry, the original antidepressants came out in the 1950s and 1960s. They had many, many side effects. They were hard to take. Uh, frankly, they could be dangerous if taken uh, incorrectly. And when Prozac came out in the 80s, it was really the first safer, easier to use antidepressant. So I think since the 80s, we really have been able to prescribe more and more because they're, they're safer, they're more user-friendly for the patient and the physician. Uh, primary care doctors rarely prescribed antidepressants and, you know, before the 80s, and now they're probably the number one prescriber. Uh, I think about 70% of the antidepressants in the U.S. come out of primary care offices, not necessarily psychiatric ones. Well, you said they're SSRI, serotonin. What, mm -hmm. what, is, what does that do? How do they work in the body? So what, what they do is they block a reuptake or a recycling pump. You, your brain likes to vacuum up serotonin. Uh, if we block those pumps, then more serotonin is essentially left floating around. And theoretically, that corrects some of the underlying um, brain problems that, that led to the depression. That, that's the theory, at least. 
And do they seem to be effective? I think so. Uh, the, the data is compelling. If you look, can an antidepressant beat a placebo or a sugar pill? Um, that's how you get FDA approved in the United States. So on the short term, they do seem to work. And really, when you look at longer term data, you know, particularly from the Scandinavian countries um, who do more long term naturalistic studies, uh, they are protective. They do help depression. They help anxiety. They help eating disorders. Uh, so they're, they're not just antidepressants, but, but they do seem to be helpful if, if used in, in the right patient. Um, does it include, include pediatrics? Is it adults and children? Yeah, I think more and more we're seeing FDA approvals uh, for children with depression. Um, you know, Prozac, for example, Lexapro are approved in both kids and adults. So the increase in, in prescribing is in both areas, uh, pediatrics and in adult patients. So are antidepressants, are they meant um, to be used in crisis to help someone through sort of a, a a period of time, or are they intended to be used long-term? So it's all relative, and there's, there's never a, a simple, easy answer. If somebody is going through a stressful situation, uh, a divorce, uh, a car crash, a house burning down, a, a, a pet passing away, a family member dying, the, these are normal but crummy parts of life. In, in our language, we call these adjustment disorders. We used to call them grief reactions a while ago, but these are tough things to navigate and most people can get through them. Um, some people need psychotherapy. That's the treatment of choice for dealing with a stressful thing where you're really stuck. But there is a, a subset of that group where that stressful, terrible situation does kick off a major depressive episode or a clinical depression. So if somebody really uh, starts meeting uh, diagnostic criteria and it turns from being a normal stressful event to being stuck in a clinical major depressive disorder, um, when that happens to somebody, you can, again, go through more formal psychotherapy and 12 to 20 weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy is an example and, and that works 70, 80% of the time. Uh, or somebody can take a medication such as one of these SSRIs or they can do both, and it really comes down to patient preference. Some people are scared of medications. Uh, some patients don't have an hour a week to talk to somebody or are scared to talk to somebody, and you really let the patient decide at that point. Or their insurance might not be as forthcoming right. with that. Right. Well, someone conceivably could start taking an antidepressant during a crisis situation, mm -hmm. and it's they it's helping, mm -hmm. and why, why upset something that's working, right? Right. I think whatever treatment course the, the patient chooses, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, and, and so ideally, you, if you can fix the depression, regardless of the treatment modality, if somebody can get to what we call remission, we, we kind of use the cancer term. Remission means no cancer cells left. Uh, in our world, remission from depression means you have no symptoms left. You're back to your normal. You're well again. I think once that can be achieved, usually after several weeks of a psychotherapy or an antidepressant, you probably want to wait uh, about a year. If somebody can stay symptom-free for a year, you hope they've beaten the depression, you hope the brain has learned not to get re-depressed, and you can take the medicine away or, or the psychotherapy away. And, and that's if it's their first depression. If they have three or four major depressive spells, you might want to do something longer, like a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, so the more the brain gets depressed again and again, the more it's going to do it in the future. Now, weren't there some warnings soon after um, these drugs became in common use um, that there were some dangers that uh, the antidepressant could actually make mm -hmm. things worse? Yeah, I, I think historically, in psychiatry at least, we've actually known regardless of if you're using an antidepressant of any kind, 
uh, psychotherapy of any kind, one of the most dangerous times in a, in a depressed person's treatment is when they start getting better. So initially, we, we felt we were using antidepressants, people were getting better, and, and when you're tired, sluggish, amotivated, it's kind of hard to contemplate acting on a suicidal plan. But when you're 10%, 20% better, you have more energy, you can put together the wherewithal to go to the store to, to buy whatever you need to harm yourself. Um, that's one of the most dangerous times. It's scary. People are actually getting better. You know, the doctor's happy, the patient's a little bit happy, but it also gives them the ability to complete a suicide. And that's regardless of treatment. So that's a, actually a very dangerous time. And we, we thought when the antidepressants were started that maybe it was just coinciding with that. When you went and looked back at the data, however, particularly in people under the age of 25, there was a statistical group that got more suicidal thinking. You know, we're, we're talking like a percentage point, not 80%. But let's say one out of 100, just to, to you know, come up with a number, actually do get worse. And, and we do need to be careful in that age group. So again, I think we're careful with everybody. We warn them they might get worse. The, the antidepressant might backfire. And if that happens, we need to stop the antidepressant, obviously, and, and make sure they're safe. So they, they can backfire. Uh, I make it um, similar to if you start an antibiotic for a sinus infection. Your, your doctor always tells you, you know, in a few days you should feel better, but you might get a rash. You might get uh, stomach problems. Um, sometimes those rashes kill people. You have an anaphylactic reaction and stop breathing. There is a harm in every medicine we take. Sure. So the antidepressants are similar. You do need to be careful, uh, but they do help people too. Well, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with psychiatrist and professor, Dr. Thomas Schwartz, uh, the interim chair of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. And we're talking about antidepressant use and what happens when someone t stops taking their medicine. Um, recently, the New York Times wrote about how some people who take antidepressants are unable to quit because of severe withdrawal symptoms. Do you see that in your practice? Or? So we do. The antidepressants, particularly the longer you've been taking them, so we're, we're talking months to years now. Uh, it's usually not after a few weeks, but if you're on an antidepressant months to years and particularly at a higher dose, uh, if you quit those cold turkey, uh, people can go into withdrawal. It's not every antidepressants. It's the antidepressants that we call them short half-life, meaning when you take a tablet, it, your body you know, gets rid of the drug within your system within hours. That's a faster drug to us. And we know that drugs that are uh, metabolized faster have more withdrawal. Uh, alcohol is a fast-acting drug, too. So the difficulty is your brain gets used to having a lot of serotonin around, which is what helps to treat your depression. And then all of a sudden, if you quit the antidepressant cold turkey, there's no serotonin. So let's say you go from 100% serotonin to 30%. Your brain reacts by creating withdrawal syndrome. And that can be things as mild as headaches and stomach aches. Sometimes people get more weepy and more sad. But sometimes they, they really get these flu-like symptoms, muscle aches, uh, joint aches. Uh, they can feel uh, hot or almost feverish. They can get, um, their muscles can get tremors or, or get uh, kind of these jerky movements. And, and some people say they get things called brain zaps. They feel like electricity is, it doesn't spark them or hurt, but they feel like they have these zips of electricity, which to me is, I've never seen that anywhere else in medicine. And so if I hear that, I, I kind of wonder if they stop their medicine all of a sudden. Is there a safe way to come off antidepressants to, to prevent all of that from happening? I think so. Uh, I certainly have had patients uh, tell me that they've never been able to get off these drugs and they're stuck in a withdrawal straight. Um, in my practice, I've actually never seen that. In my practice, I've been able to get pretty much everybody off of these safely. 
but there certainly could be people that um, get stuck in these withdrawal states. So what we would do is we take your antidepressant and we might actually lower it over you know, a few months, three months, six months. Instead of two to three weeks, we just spread out and we go lower and lower and lower. And maybe instead of dropping by 20 milligrams, we drop your dose by five. We just spread out and take a longer time. That gives your brain a chance to adapt to being without as much serotonin. I think that's effective 70, 80% of the time. Something else we'll do, we'll use the drug Prozac, and that's a long half-life drug. Every tablet you take is in your body for a week or two. Hmm. So the longer a drug lasts, the less withdrawal you have. And that's true of almost any kind of drug. So sometimes we'll take people off of a short-acting drug like Paxil or Effexor, for example, and we'll temporarily put them on Prozac to detox them. It's really like a methadone detox for people that are used to heroin. You go from a short-acting to a long-acting drug, and then you still go slowly off. So Prozac is our, our detoxification drug, and, and that uniformly works in my practice. And, and then people can get off the medication with, with much less issue. So it seems to me like um, what you're saying is that patients really shouldn't just stop taking their medicine without sort of some guidance from their physician. Or... Correct. I think that's true of any kind of doctor, you know, psychiatry, uh, family medicine, orthopedic surgery. Uh, always talk to your doctor or your nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, but always ask for advice before you quit anything cold turkey. And in psychiatry, you, you certainly could get a withdrawal, but what we've learned is the brain doesn't like to do anything fast. So do, would we re-trigger a new depression if you went cold turkey? I think so. So I'd rather take at least a few weeks or even a few months to get you off your medications. We, we just we don't want to play a trick on the brain um, and change the chemistry too quickly, whether you go on the medicine or off the medicine. Well, before, uh, before we have to wrap up, I want to ask you about the, sort of the future of antidepressants. Um, is there anything on the horizon that's going to be different with the way they're given or...? I think researchers continue to look for new ways to treat depression. There are new medicines that are like the SSRIs that seem to have a bit less side effect. So there are drugs called serotonin partial agonist reuptake inhibitors, uh, SPARI for short, S-P-A-R-I. They seem to have a little less sexual problems and a little less weight gain. So if you think about the Paxils and the Prozacs and the Zoloft, those are some of the number one complaints. So these drugs are four to five years old, so they're, they're not new, but they, they're kind of like the SSRIs with a bit less side effect in practice. So I, I think that's been helpful. I think we continue to look at new psychotherapies and different psychotherapies. You know, if you don't want to be on a medicine, what are your choices? So there's refinements in that area as well. We have uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's a high-powered magnet um, that has been FDA approved for some time, but the insurers have allowed more access to it. So we're getting more and more data in clinical practice using a high-powered magnet to essentially treat depression with a minimum of side effects. And then the hottest thing in the news seems to be ketamine and some derivatives of ketamine. The idea is if you're completely depressed and even suicidal, if you went to an emergency room, for example, they could put an IV in and give you a dose of ketamine. Ketamine's been around forever. Uh, it's a controlled substance. Uh, some people can get addicted to it. Uh, it's... Uh, anesthetic, you know, people feel less pain on it. It might be related to, you know, PCP or angel dust if you want to think scary for a minute. But at very tiny doses, uh, you can give an IV and people walk out of the emergency room not depressed and not suicidal. And it's not because they're high. The doses are, are low that you don't get a, a buzzed or a high effect. It's fascinating. And the, uh, the ketamine dampens glutamate, which is a neurochemical, a brain chemical we've been trying to manipulate for years, but we haven't found the right product. 
So an old drug is getting repurposed as kind of a quick fix to the most dire uh, consequences of being depressed. The negative is it only lasts about seven days. That was my question. How and long till it? Right. So like shock treatment, where you sometimes need to go once a week for what we would call maintenance sessions, you might have to do maintenance ketamine. So once a week, you have to go for an IV. There are now active studies using a nasal spray uh, of ketamine derivatives, and, and that way you wouldn't need an IV, you wouldn't have to go to the hospital. And, and those studies are looking promising, but they're, they're early. Uh, so it'll be interesting. Will we have a, a treatment that works quickly and just an easier way to maintain people on it. But again, you have to watch for addiction and side effects. So uh, we'll know in the future if it's the uh, becomes FDA approved and, and more routinely used. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. My guest has been Dr. Thomas Schwartz, a professor of psychiatry and the interim chair of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. up next, what you need to know about burnout on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may have heard someone say, or maybe you have felt, that you were suffering from burnout. Real burnout is a serious state of exhaustion, which makes a person vulnerable to depression and suicide, and in the healthcare setting, it can affect patient care as well. Here to talk about burnout is Dr. Holly Vanderhoff, an assistant professor of psychiatry and the co-director of student counseling services at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Vanderhoff. Thank you for having me. Well, don't most people, um, especially people with high-stress jobs, don't don't they feel stressed or burned out from time to time? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and I think we might hear the phrase burnout and think it's this pop psychology term that describes something everybody goes through. Um, And I think most of us have days where we wake up and we feel burned out or we may not want to even go to work that day. But burnout as a thing is very different. It's something something much more severe. So how do you tell um, if someone is really burned out? Mm -hmm. Well, typically what we would look for, and I I should pause and say, burnout isn't a diagnosis per se. It's not a disorder, but it's a description, right? A description of a state almost anybody could find themselves in. Um, The research on this over decades, especially since the 1970s, tells us there are three major components of burnout. And when we see those in folks, we start to think more about this idea. Um, The first would be the person, as you said earlier, feels emotionally exhausted, right? They feel as if I can't give another ounce of effort to my job. I'm overwhelmed. Um, They may not be feeling especially upset. They may just feel kind of flat and empty. Uh, The second component would be they're experiencing just a sense of detachment, 
or disconnection from their work and from the people that they work with. So they don't feel especially connected at work with others. They don't feel as if they've got a real identity in their workplace. Um, for folks who work with patients, of course, this is really concerning because um, a big thing about burnout in the helping professions is that we actually lose empathy for our patients or for our clients. Um, and so, of course, that has an impact on patient care. Uh, and then the third component would be a sense of, I, I don't even have any meaning in my job anymore. I don't have a sense of accomplishment in my work. I used to feel excited about what I might do. Now I'm not even sure this is in line with my values. And so if you put those three major clusters together, um, that's what starts to look like burnout. When you are describing all of those things, I mean, it sounds awful. Can can someone... I don't recover from all of this. I mean, how do you go about fixing it? Mm, yeah. So, well, I think the first step is is noticing that it's happening because I think a lot of us write it off. Oh, everybody has a hard time. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm weak or I'm not handling it. But I think when we step back, we might be able to see it in someone else before we see it in ourselves. When we step back um, and we notice that this is happening, we can think about what needs to happen next. Um, you know, there's some research on what promotes burnout because certainly, I mean, we all have the experience too. You can work really hard, high, high stress environment, and not get burned out, feel exhilarated, feel good about your work for a long time. What promotes burnout? Well, the, the research would tell us if you're working, yes, in a very high-demand, high-stress job, but also having a relatively low amount of control over that stress, and then also being in an environment that isn't supportive in some way, either the, the employer isn't particularly supportive, your coworkers, I don't know, they stink, they're not supportive, um, or you're working in an environment where the people are fine, but it's not efficient. You don't have what you need to do your job. And so when we put those things together, we know burnout, burnout is more likely. Fixing some of those factors is what I think is the best prevention, the best treatment once it's underway. There are individual strategies, too, that we could talk about. But Well, what do you say to someone who, if someone came to you and said, I, you know, I've, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I don't feel like people, you know, I'm, I'm detached from my work, mm -hmm. and I don't really have, you know, a sense of meaning or purpose, um, what would you say to them? I mean, where do they go from there? Mm. Well, first, as a mental health professional, I'm going to want to assess further, is this depression that also happens to affect work because there's such an overlap between the experience of burnout and depression. But if I'm talking with someone and I'm hearing that they feel pretty connected to their families, when it's the weekend, their mood is much better. This is really a, a professional state of being. I'm more likely to think about burnout. And so we'll go in that direction. And so some things we would talk about would include, um, Boy, it's, you know, it's the most boring thing, right? But the most basic stress management. Are you managing your stress well? If your job's creating a lot of stress, we are not, you know, magical, infinite reservoirs of capacity. You know, you need to be uh, managing your stress and, and refilling your capacity. So are you doing things like sleeping well? Uh, we can give a lot of lip service to eating well, but are you actually doing it? Are you exercising regularly? Um, a big one is, are you taking meaningful time off away from the work? So even if you love it on some level, are you stepping back from it? A lot of folks will say, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I come home and I watch TV for hours or I take breaks at work. But if you're taking breaks and just staring at a screen or you're not doing something really rejuvenating, it's not very meaningful as time off versus I plan that every Friday afternoon I go for a nice long walk or I take an extra hour off or I plan vacations. So we'd be talking about things they could do to, to manage that workload differently. 
Because just watching TV is not really, you're not like yeah. engaged in another thing. Mm-hmm. You're just sort of <laughs> zoning out. Yeah. Wow. So can, have you seen, can people turn it around? Can they come back from a burnout situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that does usually involve changing something about their work lives. Because by the time someone, say, gets to my door with this as an issue, uh, it's kind of entrenched. You know, people aren't coming in if they've had a day or two of not wanting to go to work. It's usually months or years of feeling this way. So it may mean something like looking for different work, or it may mean trying to remember what first felt valuable about this job and why you took it and finding ways to reconnect with that within the workplace. It might mean going to your employer with ideas about what could be different. Most people who are working in a system could tell you a lot about how that system could be improved. Employers aren't always good at listening to that. Um, so trying to make changes and then doing, again, a lot of the self-care things on the outside it does help people, and they, they can move out of this. Do you see burnout in students? Not mm-hmm. necessarily from work, but from their course load or their yes. student. Absolutely. And especially those students who are going on into, say, medicine or law careers, um, people who are preparing for careers where there's very high demand and the stakes are very high. Others' well-being is dependent on you doing your job very well. So, for instance, in medical students, we see that burnout is is extraordinarily high. So is depression. Uh, the rates of suicide and depression for medical students are much higher than they are for folks who are not medical students, right? Same age, mm-hmm. but not in medical school. Um, so I do see it. I work quite a bit with students uh, preparing for nursing, um, work in the sciences, medical school, of course, health professions. And, and you do see that in students. And it continues, especially for medical students, of course, physicians, depending on the research you look at, the research will say physicians are burning out at about a rate of 50%, right? So that, of course, has serious impacts on, on patient care. And is it true um, after, after you're a medical student, you go into a residency mm-hmm. for part of your training, and is it true that suicide is the number one cause of death among male residents and the number two cause of death among female residents? Yeah, I was stunned when I read that figure. Wow. It's um, a gathering from the ACGME study of all the causes of resident deaths, and I believe that study went from 2000 to 2014. So for a 15-year period, over a 15-year period, suicide was the number one cause of death for male residents. That's ahead of accidents. These are young uh, men who are should be statistically pretty healthy and are, but um, killing themselves at, at that rate. Mm-hmm. And number two for women behind, I believe, carcinomas. And ACGME, we should say that's the Graduate Medical Education mm-hmm. Organization. So when you talk about burnout in the medical professions, um, do you see it more in physicians or nurses? Hmm. That you see it more in one versus the other. I, I, they, it's an issue with both. I think more recently, uh, physician burnout is getting more attention, but I wouldn't say that it's higher in physicians. You know, they have very unique roles in patient care, and I, I would wager as an outsider that they're they're equally stressful in their own ways. What about the um, specialties? Are there certain medical specialties that see more? Um burnout? Mm -hmm, Certainly. So people who are in specialties that require, have a high, um, high involvement with critically ill patients. And again, remember what we said earlier, not only just a high demand, but also lack of control over that. So if I'm working in the ER, I'm an ER doc or critical care nurse, I can't control who's coming in um, or at the rate at which that happens. I have to respond. I have to do really well. Um, So a specialty like emergency medicine would be much higher than, say, dermatology. Not that you can't burn out in these right. other areas as well. 
Um, but but yes. it's a little more scheduled and mm-hmm. ex- you can plan right, and, right. and things. Wow. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about how burnout can potentially affect patient care. Sure. Because that, um, you mentioned uh, decreased empathy. Mm-hmm. And in, if you're in a caring profession, that's huge. Right. Um, are there other things that you look for? Mm-hmm. So we know that Uh, And again, people might say, well, burnout, everybody feels bad about their jobs. Well, this has a serious impact, right? So if, if, for instance, 50% of physicians are burned out at any given time, that's a staggering number of people who are treating vulnerable patients. Um, So the patient's experience might be that they don't feel especially heard or they don't feel responded to, that's problematic. Um, Also problematic, as research tells us, physicians or medical students and residents who are burned out are much more likely to make medical errors. They're more likely to falsify clinical data, perhaps even saying, well, I performed, okay, I don't remember whether I did that or not. We'll say that's normal in the chart. Um, The students who are burned out are more likely to cheat on exams. Both physicians and students are more likely to say, at least in research, I might engage in more unethical activities um, when they're burned out. So that's that's a huge impact, right? And so we also know across settings, not just in medicine, that burnout means more employee absenteeism uh, and more turnover in the workforce. And those are those are big problems for employers. So we've talked about some of the things individuals can do. Are there things that employers um, or an institution can do to sort of head off um, burnout for their employees? Absolutely. And, and again, I think prevention is the goal. But if we can't reach that, employers could take First, we could acknowledge that this is an issue, right? And it's not just an issue for people who can't handle it. Um, It's an issue for even extremely bright, resilient, well-prepared people. It's an issue. So if employers acknowledge that and launch programming to help... um, help their employees recognize when they might be burning out, provide them avenues for getting help early on, um, provide, you know, on-site stress management opportunities, have a gym in the workplace, have um, have some regular time off available. Um, don't just, so I know they at one point shrank residence hours, right, in an effort mm-hmm. to reduce burnout. But of course, if you don't reduce the workload, then now we're just asking them to do more work in shorter time. You know, so meaningful uh, change is what's important. I think the other major issue, and this is especially a problem in the medical field, is the stigma around any kind of mental health issue. And so although burnout is not a mental health issue per se, uh, it, it, it can feel really difficult to talk about it. I might feel very weak or, or as if I should be ashamed of myself if I talk with my colleagues or my employer about being burned out. So if employers could work against the stigma of getting help, that too would be really helpful. Yeah. If we could accept that this is a risk, right, an inherent risk of working in certain fields, and we all need to work on knowing this when we see it and addressing it when it happens versus having it go underground. Wow. How do we get rid of that stigma? Because, I mean, that's a good point. Yeah. And that, I mean, that causes people not to seek the help mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's, of course, a larger cultural issue. And even within the culture of, I keep picking on medicine, right? But even in the culture of medicine, um, if I'm a doctor, I am never supposed to be a patient, right? I'm never, I'm the helper. I'm never supposed to need the help. And I think we laugh at that. We say, well, that's irrational. We know it's not true, but we live our lives that way. And I think we put that pressure on ourselves. So I think there needs to be a, a culture shift that says, Um, suffering in some way is not pathology and it isn't a sign of weakness. We can get some of that culture change going by um, 
you know, citing that as a value that the, the well-being of our employees is a real value and taking meaningful steps to, to make that clear and to act on it. Um, the culture and the stigma can change a bit just by people being more willing to talk about what's going on for them. So if I'm an employer and I'm willing to stand up and say, um, I've struggled with this issue myself and this is how I over and it's actually my expectation that you'll take good care of yourself to work here. So not just lip service to, we want you all to be healthy, uh, self-care is really important, but really saying it's a professional expectation that you take good care of yourself and then making meaningful ways for folks to do that. I think that would be helpful with the stigma, but we have a long way to go on that. Very interesting. This is a, a great topic. I appreciate you being here to talk about it. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Holly Vanderhoff, assistant professor of psychiatry uh, and the co-director of student counseling services at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health Link on Air. Next up, why do so many Australians have a retrovirus called HTLV-1? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In remote areas of Australia, the infection rates of human T-cell leukemia virus type 1 are exceeding 40% among adults. HTLV-1 is present throughout the world, but the prevalence is extraordinarily high among indigenous Australians. And there's some concern that, that, that more needs to be done to prevent and reduce transmission. Here to talk about HTLV retroviruses is Dr. Bernie Poise, a professor of medicine in Upstate's Division of Hematology and Oncology, who's been involved in retroviral research for decades. Thank you for being here, Dr. Poise. Glad to be here. Your name is right there with uh, Dr. Robert Gullos uh, on the first paper identifying HTLV-1 nearly four decades ago. Can you tell us how you got started in this area of research? I uh, got started in retroviral research when I was a... Uh, senior at LaSalle University in Philadelphia. I had, uh, as an or, undergraduate? As an undergraduate, yes. Oh. I had um, um, already uh, been selected to go to the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, and they had a summer research program that as a college senior I was able to take avail of. And I matriculated in Dr. Lawrence Loeb's lab at the uh, Fox Chase Cancer Institute and started doing research in retroviruses, characterizing their DNA polymerases, which are called reverse transcriptases, working with a variety of them, and then actually looking at human T lymphocytes at their DNA polymerases and contrasting them with retroviruses. Actually, um, during my time as a medical student and working in Larry's lab, he, he arranged for my fellowship and job uh, at the National Cancer Institute in the Laboratory of Tumor Cell Biology run by Dr. Robert Gallo. And when I went there, um, to be honest, within the first, I was quite experienced in looking for retroviruses and looking at T-cell uh, lymphomas and leukemias. And uh, I discovered HTLV-1 within the first four months of working there, and we 
worked for two years characterizing it and published it in 1980. So this has been your life's work. Yeah, correct. Yeah, my professional life, yeah. And that was the first human retrovirus uh, discovered. Um, Retroviruses cause a variety of diseases in animals across the planet. Cancers, uh, immune deficiencies, uh, uh, autoimmune diseases, things like that. But uh, a human retrovirus discovery had eluded science for a long time until we found HTLV-1. Well, I, I've, we've heard what viruses are. Is a retrovirus, how, how does that compare to a virus? Uh, retroviruses are a distinct class of viruses, and they, they get their name because they can copy their RNA into DNA. Their genome uh, is, is a single strand of RNA. Our genome is double-stranded DNA, and there's many RNA and DNA viruses. Retroviruses, to complete their life cycle, have to cop copy that RNA into double-stranded DNA, which then integrate in, into the host uh, chromosomal DNA. Um, so it's retro means going back from RNA to DNA. Interesting. Well, what can you tell us about human T-cell leukemia viruses? All right. It's ubiquitous around the planet. We, we now know that HTLV-1 is uh, joined by three other species, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, these are also ubiquitous to non-human primates, and it probably passed from primates to humans multiple times over many millennia. Uh, with HTLV-1, we believe, originated in uh, non-human primates in sub-Saharan Africa and has gotten into humans many times. There's two major subgroups, um, probably representing two major distributions from non-human primates. The sub-Saharan group is one, and then we know in Southeast Asia, Australia, Micronesia, Melanesia, there was transmission of another primate form into humans. The two distinct HTLV-1 subgroups are about 15% different in their nucleic mm -hmm. acid. Um, so they, they probably got introduced into humans thousands of years apart. So how do they get introduced? In? How does a human contract this? Well, it, it, retroviruses are passed by intimate contact with either body fluids or uh, blood products. Um, it's assumed that the spread from non-human primates to primates probably occurs during um, the hunting and slaughtering and, and eating of raw primate meat, uh, and the, the blood from the animal can get into the human via cuts, etc. Uh, among animals, including humans, retroviruses are passed by intimate contact, and that usually, in, in the wild, that in natural circumstances, that would usually mean during uh, sexual intercourse or breastfeeding. Um, again, the, the relatively recent introduction of blood product transfusion led to further spread of these viruses amongst humans. Are there, uh, are there American, is this in the American population? Correct, HCLV? it's endemic, it's endemic in sub-Saharan uh, sub Africa. So those parts of the country in the world where uh, there's 
larger um, uh, sub-Saharan African populations, um, HTLV-1 is present. About 20-some years ago, we did a study in the medical clinics throughout metropolitan New York City and found that 4% of the people of African descent had, were infected with HTLV-1. It's endemic throughout the Caribbean. It got spread around the world by um, the uh, ex uh, European explorers, particularly the Portuguese, uh, uh, either through the slave trade or just through interaction among humans. Uh, so it's very prevalent in, in Brazil. It's, it got spread to southern Japan uh, and parts of the Far East by the European uh, exploration and, and trade and uh, was, was quite frequent there. It's got leukemia in its name. Is it, does that mean it causes cancer? Correct. Uh, HTLV-1, most people that get infected with HTLV-1, and then we, there are a lot of humans with HTLV-2. HTLV-2 is curious in that it's endemic amongst the uh, pygmy population in Central Africa, but also among Paleo Amerindians, the Indian groups that came over in the first two major uh, migrations to the New World uh, from Asia, uh, have HTLV2. Um, the HTLV1 causes disease in about 5% of infected people over their lifetime. About 2 to 4% will get a form of leukemia called adult T cell lymphoma leukemia. It's a, a fatal disease. It can be treated, but it's not curable. Well, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Bernie Poise, an expert in retroviruses who's a professor of medicine in hematology and oncology at Upstate. Um, so HTLV-1, I've um, heard it described as a cousin of HIV, the that well, causes AIDS, right? They're, they're both retroviruses, and they they, they share some properties. They're, they're both tropic for a type of white blood cell called the CD4 positive T cell. However, they've been separated in evolutionary terms from each other probably for millions of years. Uh, HIV is also a virus that uh, is endemic among non-human primates and got passed to humans from primates. That probably happened relatively recently uh, and probably within the last 50 to 100 years, whereas HTLV-1 got passed many, many thousands of years ago. HTLV-1 and humans and non-human primates have kind of worked out a symbiotic relationship. It doesn't kill uh, right away and it only kills a minority of the infected people and you actually have to live for quite a while with it in order to get sick from it. Hmm. HIV is relatively new to humans, and we haven't worked out a symbiotic relationship. Untreated, it can be lethal to us. HTLV-1 transforms the target T cell. It makes it immortal, makes it grow forever. Um, that's how it passes its uh, genome in the DNA of the host cell. HIV kills the cell that it's infected. Um, and has to get out quick, has to mutate a lot to avoid the immune system and then infect other target T cells and quickly pass to another host from one host to the other. So they're, 
they are alike, but very, very different. They're sort of on opposite spectrums of the um, of the uh, pathogenesis in, in the in the host animal. Oh, interesting. So, so what's happening with HTLV one in Australia? Well, we we uh, cooperated uh, and collaborated with Carlton Gadjusek a long time ago in studying <clears throat> the possibility that HTLV um, had infected indigenous populations of the, the South Pacific a long time ago. And we, we have learned over the years that it's endemic amongst Australian Aborigines and people in Melanesia and Micronesia. So it, it got into these folks probably uh, prior to their, uh, to, to the rise in sea levels as it's throughout all those islands implying that you know at some point people were able to easily uh, migrate from one spot to the other and pass the virus one to the other. It, 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 the HTLV-1 strain in Australia again is about 15 percent different from the strains in Africa uh, but it causes the same diseases it causes lymphoma, it causes a neurologic disease that's very similar to multiple sclerosis. In Australia, there seems to be a higher incidence of a disease called bronchiectasis. This is a disease of the lungs, very similar in some ways to emphysema and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, where the airways are chronically inflamed, uh, leading to their destruction and breakdown over time. Uh, bronchiectasis has been seen in other HTLV-infected populations, but seems to occur very frequently in, in Australian Aborigines. And we're not quite clear like, wh why is this so. Uh, about uh, There was a recent study in Australia that 60% of the people with the diagnosis of bronchiectasis in Australia had HTLV-1 infection. Whereas here in the United States, that would be a very small number. Um, the recent concerns are about in some of the uh, in Aboriginal groups in Central Australia have shown a very high prevalence of HTLV-1. Uh, and it's not totally clear why. I mean, you could speculate uh, since the virus is passed by breastfeeding, by uh, sexual interaction and intercourse and by transfusion, there must be, some, in my opinion, some behavioral uh, event going on that's increasing the spread of the virus amongst the, the, the patient's population. Well, how are these uh, people in Australia or anywhere, how are they being treated once, once you have this? What, There's no done? treatment for HTLV-1 uh, infection. Uh, some of the antivirals that we use for HIV might have some modest impact on HTLV-1 spread, but in part, uh, the virus spreads in the body a little bit differently than HIV. Again, when it infects a, a human T cell, it makes it grow. It makes it um, um, almost be immortal. It, it can grow and spread, and that each clone of infected cells expands many thousands of times over the lifetime of the person. And it's not spreading by making new virus and infecting another target cell. 
It's simply duplicating the infected cell and the DNA of the virus is in the DNA of the host cell and it expands that way. So it's not, a lot of our drugs for HIV attack the virus by preventing its expression and replication. HTLV bypasses that, so the drugs don't affect its, its spread within the body. Um, also, because it doesn't make that many people sick over their lifetime, there's been less of, of a need to, uh, to, to treat it. Uh, you, there's treatments for the various diseases, um, but they're not curative. They can um, ameliorate some of the signs and symptoms and improve survival but they do not make the disease go away. Um, what about a vaccine? HTLV-1, and HTLV-1, I should say, is related to bovine leukemia virus. With the primate T-cell lymphoma leukemia viruses and bovine leukemia virus, they form what are called the group D retroviruses. So HTLV would be much more amenable to approach of vaccine therapy uh, than HIV. HIV replicates very fast, it mutates. We published a long time ago that it has the most error-prone DNA polymerase ever discovered. HTLV, by contrast, doesn't mutate its DNA. It has the most faithful DNA polymerase ever discovered. It makes less errors than our own normal human DNA polymerases. So it, it should be easier to attack and prevent HTLV-1 infection with the vaccine. But there's been no public health um, outcry or effort throughout the world to do so. Uh, part of the reason probably is in some of the parts of the world where its uh, uh, prevalence is higher uh, are uh, more economically deprived. So there's not a lot of money to uh, apply a virus uh, program. Uh, countries like Japan, where they do have uh, a you know, top-notch uh, scientific uh, medical system, could uh, take on the effort to eliminate the disease in, in southern Japan by a vaccine, but they've chosen to approach it by a public health uh, effort that we don't do here and they don't do in Europe. Wow, what an interesting field, though, and I, I really appreciate you coming to share this with us. Uh, my guest has been Professor of Medicine, Dr. Bernie Poise. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Cynthia Carmichael, a physician and writer from California, was born and raised in Miami. Her poem, The Photograph, reminds us why we prize some possessions so highly for the stories they contain. The photograph of you in a canoe has gone missing. It shows a young you hair crew cut short. The photographer, your friend, must have called your name, caught your half smile, a dolphin smile. Spent the morning searching for you in a canoe. Though the photo is black and white, does not reveal your red hair, your freckles. Want to search for clues. Was it snapped in the Everglades, Lake Okeechobee? Was I born then? If so, did you miss me? Remember myself swimming across a lake 
you in a canoe paddling alongside, want to be with you in a canoe again, want to hold you in a canoe in my hand. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll get an overview of muscular dystrophy. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.